Hey, it's Sarah and Kristen. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Into the Wee Hours podcast. As always, with all of the content that's out there, we are so grateful that you choose to spend your time with us. We would also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and sea where the podcast is being recorded, the land of the Gubby Gubby people of the Sunshine Coast. We pay respect to their elders past, present and those emerging. As always, like in previous episodes, we have mentioned we have started a Patreon account. It's pretty easy to find us online at patreon.com forward slash into the wee hours podcast. As much as we're doing this for fun, podcasting certainly doesn't come without its own one-off and monthly costs, and we'd be super grateful for any support and always so grateful for our existing Patreons and all of you listening. We're so incredibly appreciative of any and all support we receive, but again, just happy that you are here. In this episode, we speak with Leif Christensen while he was up visiting from Adelaide. Leif is a friend that I met at Run Lara Pinta in 2018. He's another awesome human with a whole load of adventures under his belt, and we have a great chat about how his life looks as a busy everyday adventurer working in the fire service, incorporating travel, adventures, and racing, and also how he trains with his Kelpie Boston in an urban search and rescue unit. Life was so fun to have on, and as we have said before with other guests, we could have talked to him for hours about all of his adventures, local and abroad. Now, we have fixed the popping noises on the audio. However, we do have a feature guest of Ness in the background that we wanted to, that wanted to say hi in various places. We decided that after trying to edit her out, it actually takes away from some of this sound quality overall. So enjoy her company on this episode. Sorry, Kristen, chief editor and my doggo. All right, cue the music with Kristen. episode 19 of the Into the Wee Hours podcast. My name is Sarah Pendergrass and I am joined as ever by my wonderful co-host Kristen Vorton. Hello. We're in a bit of a different location today. And we have a different person. (laughs) And we have a different person. (laughs) So we're joined today by Leif Christensen. Thank you for joining us all the way from Adelaide, although you are in person. No problem. We just got rid of some um, interesting sound issues where we thought we could hear well, it's debatable cicadas or cicadas in the background. And it turns out there was a window open and we could really hear them. <laughs> <laughs> there was actual cicadas or cicadas. <laughs> what did you say about how they're pronounced, Life? What was your... Cicadas, because uh, in South Australia, we speak the Queen's English. <laughs> <laughs> well, neither of us are actually from Australia, which always makes it very easy to distinguish who the guest is. <laughs> And yeah, neither of us know how you really pronounce it. So you win this time. Congratulations. I'm not really sure either. (laughs) Awesome. Well, we just had dinner. Um, I personally chose not to have pineapple on my pizza. (laughs) So we've kind of had a warm up between us as well. But like you've been here for a just since yesterday with Sarah as well. So this is the first time that we are sitting in the same 
place together at the same time. Uh, just to do a bit of a warm up for all of our listeners, we like to do a little bit of a quick fire question. I really, we should stop calling them quick fire questions. They're really not quick fire anymore. I'm just always hopeful. Yeah. So it's just to kind of warm us all up, just get us into the like, kind of the swing of the podcast and things. Um, and most of it comes without any prompt of knowing you. So keep that in the back of your mind as well. Well, and also just to introduce for background, the reason Leif is here is because we met in 2018 at Run Lara Pinta at the stage race out of Alice Springs. We haven't seen each other since then and you're up in Queensland visiting and staying. So we took the opportunity to hijack the bedroom that you're staying in at my house and turn it into a podcast studio. <laughs> Works well. <laughs> so thank you for giving us your time. It's also much more comfortable because we can have the air con on, so we're not all going to be sweating. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty yeah. stoked about this. <laughs> all right, so into the not so quick fire, quick fire. Um, who's asking the first question? Yeah, you have to ask the first question. <laughs> Okay, so life the big question, pineapple on pizza, hell's yes or hell's no? Yes. Yes. <laughs> There's only one plate I noticed that didn't have the pineapple eaten, so I need the answer to that one. Yeah, I think that's getting back to my Queensland roots. Oh. <laughs> Pineapple's well, up this way. Well, what would the queen do? Would she have pineapple on her pizza or no? Hmm, good question. I don't know. We'll have to, we'll to bring her onto the podcast. <laughs> very everyday person to bring on lizzie whenever you're ready we'll get you on the zoom call all right um now if you had to do karaoke it could be after one drink or after 15 drinks what's your go-to song oh gosh um maybe some led zeppelin ballad or something like that oh okay yeah, yeah. right any specific led zeppelin ballad that you choose no oh. Stairway to Heaven, maybe? Yeah, it's a classic, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, nice Pretty one. good. <laughs> Love it. Okay, so next one. I know that you have taken part in so many different activities, adventures, sports, however you want to classify them. If you could only do one sport for the rest of your life, what would it be? Ooh, I'd probably say running. Um, just for the simplicity of it and the places it can take you and the freedom and just the ease, as long as you're not injured, the ease of it is, um, pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. And it's social too. It can be an individual thing or really social. So yeah, it kind of ticks all the boxes. No, no equipment to worry about and have to cart around with you except a pair of shoes and yeah, you're good to go. And maybe your dog. And you can run with your dog. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. (laughs) All right, a genie shows up and he says, Life, you can have whatever you want. There's three wishes that I will grant you. What's your three wishes that you ask the genie? Four, oh, three wishes. Well, Sarah and I were actually talking the other day and uh, I thought of it then was uh, being able to control the sunlight oh, you know, and okay. darkness. Okay. So we're talking about you know, how bad it is sometimes when you're out adventuring somewhere and the, you know, the night time's coming and you're racing to get into camp or you're freezing your ass off somewhere and you're just willing the sun to come up and are you scared of critters out in the dark and we're talking about dingoes and dogs howling at us camping out in the dark in the middle of nowhere and just waiting for that sun to come up so you can feel safe again. So I think, yeah, you know, sunlight brings life and um, a sense of safety and normality and yeah, so to be able to control darkness and sunshine would be awesome. That's an awesome one. 
Yeah. Yeah. To flick that light on when it's the middle of the night and the howling dogs are around you, just like that would be freaking cool. Yeah. Nice yeah. choice. Alison wanted to control the weather. So she just wanted to be like cool, temperate, mm-hmm. but she didn't want him to have to move anywhere from Queensland. <laughs> so that was the big caveat. Yeah. <laughs> Tricky then because it's really humid up here. <laughs> it is. It is. As you've experienced today. All right. You've got um, two more wishes. Two more. Um, probably. I don't know, to be, go back in time would be pretty awesome. Yeah. I always felt like I was like born in the wrong decade or something like that. And I'd love to go back and experience other decades. Um, but also like within my own lifetime, redo some things, you know, I don't, don't quite agree with people that say they wouldn't change a thing if they could do their life again. I think, well, that seems pretty silly. Like I think you sh- should learn from your mistakes and, um, you know, to be able to go back and change a few things and, you know, not go over a jump where you got injured on a mountain bike or something like that, or um, just little things, you know, you don't have to go and change the world, but um, yeah, I think going back in time would be pretty awesome. Um, and the third one, um, yeah, probably not getting injured would be a big one. <laughs> I wish nobody got injured because then you could really see, like, I get upset when other people get injured as well you know they really want something so bad or you want something really bad and then you get injured and you're just carrying an injury and you just can't train to your full potential or can't succeed in things you really really want to do just because of a physical injury and um, I think that can be really heartbreaking and um, you know it can lead people to have bouts of depression and things like that you know because they're at such an elite level in what they're doing and then they get injured and they can't do what they love doing anymore um, you know, it can ruin lives. So I think if people didn't get injured, that would be pretty awesome. I like that you mentioned as well of not having other people be injured and you mm. kind of like almost, we're going to go down this path too, of like, imagine the potential of some people if they were never injured, Yeah, you know, those people who are always injured and have the drive to train and things like that, but they keep getting injured. Maybe their body is just susceptible to it. It'd be quite interesting to see, yeah. you know, who would stack up in the elites, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Like you wouldn't be able to overtrain. Like, is that what that means? I don't know. Does it include overtraining? It's your it's your genie wish. <laughs> or would you, expose, yeah, would you expose people who did do too much training? <laughs> I, yeah, I, th- I think um, it'd be great to see how far you could push yourselves and see how far other people would push them. But I think overtraining would come down to that intrinsic motivation and internal drive that is separate from injuries and physical abilities. It's more a mental, mental stimulation, mental drive. So if, it, if you just don't have it, you don't have it. And I think... Everyone's got some level of drive um, in different things in life. And, you know, I guess this podcast is about adventure and sports and that sort of thing. So I guess that's our focus. But, um, you know, everyday things like cleaning up around the house. Some people do it really well. Some people don't. You know, but injury doesn't really come into that. You know, (laughs) you can can still uh, choose not to clean up or clean up depending if you're injured or not. So I think, yeah. Oh, that's, I'm not big into cleaning, but I just didn't want to risk injury. I didn't realize. <laughs> well, we know how you've broken your... Well, exactly. I've broken my ankle in my house, so exactly. it's a dangerous place. <laughs> yeah. True. Although it wouldn't have happened if there wasn't something on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, moving on from that, please. Yeah. I also, I feel like I want, because you said something yesterday that I was like, I feel like a genie can grant a bonus wish. And that is you mentioned that you wish your Kelpie Boston would live forever or you yeah. mentioned that he was going to and I feel like our genie he will, yeah. will grant that wish so. at least outlive yeah. me 
Because I can't go through the trauma of losing him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's pretty relatable, I feel. Yeah. I think everybody in this room would definitely agree with that. <laughs> yeah, pretty special. Pretty special buddies. Yeah, mm. that's it. Um, okay, so next one. Okay, context of COVID, restricted travel, etc., etc. None of that exists in this world. So if you could go right now anywhere in the world, where would you go? I think um, I'll answer this in two ways. From a personal life desire, I'd probably go back to Brazil and see um, the family I lived with over there because um, I, I miss them quite a fair bit. And um, from an adventure perspective, um, I'd, I'd be, a, yeah, probably back to Nepal. Um, yeah, it has a, quite a special place in my heart, Nepal. I've um, been there a few times and I had planned to be there going there this year um but obviously with covid probably not going to happen and yeah and i was going to go to new zealand last year to for a climbing trip but that didn't happen so this year's probably going to turn into new zealand and then who knows maybe the year after um back to nepal if things calm down on the covid front so yeah nepal or brazil were yeah. you climbing in nepal what were you doing there yeah yeah so um well i was saying to sarah the other day that um um, my, my ex and I, we, um, had sort of, were looking for a trip and we were planning, um, an East coast trip, East coast of Australia. Um, and going from Adelaide up to the East coast and then cruising up down the East coast for a couple of months, turns out it was going to be quite expensive. So I don't know, we happened to start looking around at where else we could go and, um, some cheap flights to Nepal came up to Kathmandu. So, oh yeah, that's pretty good. Like, you know, basically a thousand bucks return to Kathmandu sounds pretty tempting. Don't know anything about it. Um, a few years prior, we'd been to um, South America and um, in Venezuela and did a little very ignorant um, mountaineering, you could barely call it that, climbing trip over there, um, which was, yeah, ignorance is bliss. And looking back at that was pretty unsafe what we did um but we survived and had a great time and great memories um and i guess that um sort of stimulated interest in further places and trips that involve mountains so yeah nepal kind of sparked our interest and um we ended up going there so yeah we ended up um looking at you know what to do in nepal and uh so one thing led to another and it was yeah obviously mountains the himalayas um, a pretty obvious thing to do and go and see in Nepal. So we looked at some sort of, I guess some people refer to them as trekking peaks, um, but we went up a mountain um, called Island Peak or Imjase. I'm not really sure how to pronounce it. Um, and that's uh, just over 6,000 metres, um, 6'2 or something like that. And then because uh, we were both runners, we also you know looked at, into other things to do in Nepal um, and obviously the Everest Base Camp trek. And then... Looking at that kind of stuff, um, we stumbled across the Mount Everest Tenzing Hillary Marathon that you can do, which is out of Mount Everest Base Camp. So, yeah, we ended up doing that as well. And um, so it was just interesting how that trip kind of, yeah, snowballed into like this multifaceted like adventure. <laughs> Went in Nepal, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Run an Everest marathon. Mm, yeah. yeah. What, so what altitude is that that you were running at? Uh, uh, base camp's at f about 5,200 metres. Yeah. Um, and just at the um, bottom of the Kumbu Icefall. So you're sort of camping there on a glacier. 
and then you run down through the valley, essentially following the Everest Base Camp trekking route, um, down 42Ks um, to the town called Namche Bazaar. Um, so over that 42Ks, you're doing 2,000 metres of descent. So you finish at about 3,200 metres. And then you're doing 1,000 metres of ascent across that course as well. And wow. Yeah, it was pretty wild. Like You're kind of running on every type of terrain you can possibly imagine. Snow, ice, rock, shaley stuff, um, steep mud, sand, dirt, everything. So, and you hadn't done any altitude acclimation or anything like that? You well, we had, yeah, okay. we, we'd done that island peak climb gotcha. prior. Okay, cool. Yeah. So it wasn't just a shock to the body, let's go run a marathon. No, yeah. no. Yeah. You can actually, you can sign up just for the Everest Marathon. Um, so that's as part of like a, a tour group essentially. And they'll, you'll do the, the base camp trek. So it takes about a week to get up there. Um, so those people that did that um, in the town just before Everest Base Camp, um, we caught up with them and met them there and just sort of tacked on. And um, a few of them, yeah, were a bit sick with attitude sickness. Um, and uh, yeah, but our acclimatization, we'd been in country for three or so weeks before on top of what they'd done. So yeah, it worked out pretty well for us. Yeah. Cool. That's mm. a very long, quick-fire question. I forgot <laughs> so, where the question was. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. That was back at the genie question, but you had something to yeah, enter in there. All right, last one, just to wrap it up. Um, now, we had Luke as a sports psychologist on. I really like asking the question of give yourself a compliment because it's something that not everybody is challenged to do at all times. So what would you say in terms of giving yourself a compliment right now? Um. It might be to a fault, but um, having lots of desires, so desires and goals, um, not even goals really, but just lots of ideas and thoughts about things to do and what I want to do in life. I think there's, there's so much out there to explore and see and do and experience that I just don't understand it when people just don't want to travel and don't want to do stuff. They're happy to just sit at home and I guess that's just not me. I have... Yeah, lots of desires, and I think that's a good trait because, you know, I think life's meant to be lived. And, um, yeah, it's a balancing act, though, Um, trying to juggle work-life commitments, relationships amongst all those desires and um, keep everybody happy can be a struggle. Um, But, yeah, having having those desires and just drive to get out and about and experience life. Another genie uh, wish that you can ask is um, more time. (laughs) Um, more time yeah 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 to fulfill the desires and i think you know you don't have to achieve all your desires you don't have to achieve all your goals but just having them there as something that's driving you to move and progress through life uh, is a good thing definitely yeah Yeah. something to keep going and get better and keep having something to strive for as well yeah yeah awesome good job out of the quick fire questions and Nessa settled down a little bit too. We'll see how that goes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Full disclosure for everybody. Again, being in Sarah's house, you could Ness have is little... in a crate upstairs. Yeah. <laughs> it's right. If it gets too bad, we can always pause, but it's fine. <laughs> All right. So just to um, kind of open up the floor as well. Again, our listeners don't know you. Probably mm-hmm. not anyways. Um, so Leif, just give a little bit of an origin story. You know, <clears throat> who are you? Where are you from? What have you done to get yourself where you're here? It can be as many or little words as you'd like, but we're just opening the floor to you. Okay. Well, 
Well, to get here, I had to, by the last minute, have a rat test in Adelaide to get on a plane to let me in the state. So that was, uh, yeah, I'd hunt that down, but we got you. Yeah, um, thanks, Queensland. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I guess um, I've probably had a pretty privileged, in a lot of ways, upbringing. Um, my parents were awesome, um, gave me a lot of opportunities in sports and camps and trips and things like that. So I played a lot of sport, mainly sort of soccer and basketball through through school. Um, I was always active doing stuff. Um, and then at the end of high school, I was lucky enough, um, you know, through the support of my parents to be able to go and do an exchange of sorts um, and go and went and lived in Brazil for a year. Um, so that was, yeah, absolutely life-changing, that, that trip in many ways. Um, and I think that's probably the time in my life that really stimulated my interest and desire to see the world and experience other people, other cultures, other places. Um, so since then, yeah, I've just um, stumbled from one thing to another, really. Um, was lucky enough to meet and marry for a while an amazing um, woman who supported those adventures as well. And we had a lot of cool adventures together too. Um, and sort of, I got into running through her, um, was literally chasing her for a while and <laughs> got me into the sport, which I thought was the most ridiculous sport, but you know, running's not for everybody and I can totally get that. Um, but it sort of, yeah, stuck with me and, um, here I am now saying like running's the one sport I'd probably keep doing if I could do a sport forever. So I think just the places that running can take you is amazing. So yeah, I started, um, getting into running um, in, I guess, my mid-twenties. Um, before that, I was working like hospitality, drinking way too much beer and eating heaps of schnitzels and it wasn't the, you know, the picture of health. Um, and I had um, some health complications with my leg, was in and out of hospital a few times and, um, you know, like a applied for the military and was told I was, you know, medically unfit so I couldn't do any job in the military and things like that. So that was kind of like a, a career desire I'd had for a while to be in the military. Um, so that fell through. And and then I think from that, though, that sort of stimulated more desires and more drive to show them that <laughs> <laughs> that I could still do stuff even yeah. though I'd had, you know, some operations and things on my leg. So, yeah, that's um, a big motivating factor for me now just to, to keep proving to myself and other people that I can keep doing stuff physically. Um, and, uh, yeah, just those experiences just led to, you know, sharing those experiences was probably a big motivating factor, doing them with people that were close to you. Um, I don't think it's as fun sharing experiences not sharing experiences, doing things on your, on your own. Um, sharing them meaning like doing them with other people or yes. after the fact? Yeah. Doing them with yeah. other people, yeah. And meeting other people along the way and maybe doing part of an experience with somebody. Yeah. Um, solo adventures are cool, but um, yeah, it's nice to go through things with other people. Yeah. And so, yeah, I um, started running. Um, then I... I got a job, I went back to uni and um, was a social worker, did psychology and then went and did a master's in social work um, 
and then was working in the disability field um, with kids. And then I quit that and got a job uh, with an organization called Operation Flinders. So that's like adventure therapy work for kids that are um, don't have a lot of opportunities in life and, yeah, struggling a little bit. Um, so we'd take them out bush and for a week at a time and walk them 100Ks across the Northern Flinders Ranges. Wow. Um, much to their disgust. And <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, that, and this would be a group of kids that would have never done that, right? No, yeah, yeah, yeah never so done it's kind of anything. Yeah, 100Ks is yeah. a long way A as long well. way for mm. a lot of people, yeah, yeah. especially kids, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so it was, um, yeah, pretty awesome. And usually by the end of it, most of the kids were loving it, you know, and they didn't want to go home, so. That's cool. Yeah, so I kind of took a sideways step with the social work theme um, and went into that adventure therapy work. And that was awesome. Um, through that, I did a lot of other activities, um, rock climbing, kayaking, abseiling. Um, got a few, you know, skills and <clears throat> certifications around those things as well. Um, and that just, you know, I met some cool people through that, like-minded people that would help out on that program and did some adventures with them. And anything from, you know, riding motorbikes, um, full driving to running and rock climbing adventures and all sorts. So... Yeah, I've made some really good friends through that. Um, had some cool trips as a result um, over to New Zealand and all sorts of places. So, um, yeah, and then uh, that wasn't really a career path for me. Um, I couldn't really see it going anywhere um, long term, as much fun as it was. But um, it was a lot of hard work too, um, a lot of time planning and preparing for those kind of activities for kids and you know all the checks and balances you have to do when you're taking a group of kids away to do any activity especially outdoor adventure ones that were you know debatably high risk like abseiling <clears throat> um so yeah then i um amongst those years i was um i applied a couple of times to get in the fire service in south australia the metropolitan fire service so i eventually got in there um, and so now, yeah, I'm a firefighter, been doing that for about three years now. Um, and yeah, love it. And that's my career path now, which is a good mix. I think of the social connection, community involvement, plus a lot of hands-on activities. Um, I work at a, a station where there's a rescue appliance. So we've got a lot of rope gear and we do rope rescues and things like that as well. So tying in all those sort of adventure skills a little bit too. And then, yeah, through that, I've been lucky enough to get involved in, um, uh, I guess, uh, an arm of the fire service through the Urban Search and Rescue Capability and Task Force, um, which involves uh, canines. So um, we have search and rescue dogs. That, um, yeah, we train up to find uh, live humans trapped um, under, you know, building collapses and things like that. So. Um, that's what I'm spending a lot of my spare time doing now with my dog, um, training, yeah, to do that. So he's lucky enough he can come to work with me some days and hang out and yeah, he loves it. That's awesome. And what made you get into the fire service? And it's very hard to get into the fire service is what I understand. I had a friend in Adelaide trying to get in for years mm. and it's very selective and yeah, from everything that I've heard of. So what made you like want to get into it? Yeah, it was just, I'd, um, well, I'd actually had a couple of mates who I went to school with um, who'd got in um, a couple of years before me at different times. And so at that time when they got in, I had no interest in it. It wasn't a job I'd 
always dreamed of doing or, you know, like it is for some people. Um, so just talking to them, um, hearing about what was involved on a day-to-day basis was um, really interesting. And obviously, yeah, it kind of just ticked all the boxes for me. Um, the, the social engagement stuff, because we do a lot of um, community involvement around fire safety work, going to schools and kindergartens, teaching them about, you know, fires and how to be fire safe. Um, hospital visits to the burns unit and things like that too. Um, and then there was a whole hands-on practical element to it um, as well. So that sort of stimulated my interest. Um, it's quite diverse. There's lots of different roles and jobs within the fire service. Um, and I was saying to Sarah the other day that since getting in, I've realized how much more there actually is than what I thought there was, which is, you know, even more cool. So yeah, you're right. There's um, literally thousands of applicants each time they run a application process. Um, I, ironically, the first time I applied, I didn't get past the psych test, um, even though I have a degree in psychology. psychology. <laughs> <laughs> so people always ask, like, how do you get through the different re- testing rounds? And I'm like, I've got no idea. Yeah. <laughs> I, no idea. I guess it depends exactly on what they're looking for. There's all those different mm. types of, like, things that they can put you into. Like, we used to do it with work as well. Not the current work. We mm. used to do it through Toyota and stuff. And one of the things that they, like, put you in was neuroticisms. And I... I don't know the other four or five or whatever, but sometimes they would be looking for specific things, I'm sure, in different positions of what you, what they want mm. out of you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I think so. Um, so yeah, they, they look for all sorts of different personality types and traits and skills and backgrounds. <clears throat> so it's very diverse who they take mm. each um, recruit squad. Um, so yeah, I was lucky enough to get in my second time applying which was about 18 months after the first time because mm-hmm. I don't run intakes every year. It's just random. Um, yeah, but it's pretty challenging. You go through psych and aptitude testing, physical testing, interview, and then a four-month recruit squad um, as well before you're out on station. Yeah, and then it's a 12-month probation from there. So, yeah, wow. mm. yeah. yeah, amazing. I have to say, I like I do feel like when we spoke yesterday about it and now like your passion for it is it's so cool. Like I, I'm always saying to Kristen, like, I want to know what I want to do. And like hearing you talk about where you've landed with this is really, yeah, it's just, I'm stoked for you. Um, there's obviously a physical side to it as well. Mm. Like how has that played a role? I mean, how do you balance being fit for work or what you're training for? Or like, how do they play a part? Yeah. Fitness for work is um, <clears throat> quite different to fitness for sport. Um, so I, I went in, uh, to the fire service thinking and I was pretty fit, feeling mm. pretty fit. And yeah, I was running fit, you know, but there's all sorts of different types of fitness. And uh, so, you know, I did well on the beat test, for example, and whatever. But strength-wise, I um, was fine, but I felt like I was lacking. So um, I was lucky enough now to um, get a permanent station um, and, you know, fell in with some guys there, the crew that are really into their fitness. Um, so we get around the gym every shift. Um, and I worked hard on certain elements like, you know, holding up a fire hose inside a house where you're squirting water on a fire is hard work. Yeah. Um, and that, the, you know, the jet reaction when you turn the hose on, yeah. like just put me on my ass a couple of times. <laughs> so I personally didn't want to 
be embarrassed and fall on my ass anymore. <laughs> so like who's squirting water. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it's quite the image. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to really like develop my shoulder strength, for example. So I'd, <laughs> I'd get in the gym and do some shoulder workouts and stuff like that. So I really, I think, given myself a more holistic body workout, yeah. um, which has benefited me in other activities, other sports, including my running. Um, I really noticed actually after the last ultra marathon I did which was the Margaret River 80, um, that I needed more leg strength. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's something I'm going to look to develop for the next one is just get in the gym a bit more and do some more leg weights. Whereas, yeah, for Margaret River, I kind of stopped going to the gym because I thought oh, I just need to get run running fit and lose some weight. And so I'm lighter across the terrain and that sort of stuff. But, you know, that that works well on flat road marathons and 10k track works and things like that but when you're running lot you know thousands of meters of ascent over 10 hours um you need some muscle <laughs> yeah there's a lot of eccentric movements that's happening especially on the downhill for example yeah but yeah they're putting so much more emphasis on training yeah. to include strength as well so i think yeah. that's awesome yeah so yeah. it sounds like they complement each other pretty well then yeah absolutely and like the work-life balance is amazing so cool. we work <clears throat> four days on four days off two day shifts, two night shifts, and then have four days off. So that was a big draw card too. So, you know, just to be able to get out and do things on your days off is pretty awesome. Um, you can go away on, you know, every week you've got a long weekend basically. Mm-hmm. So get away on long weekend adventures if you want to. And um, yeah, plenty of time for running and activities. So that was a big draw card. <laughs> totally. That would be massive. <laughs> yeah. And it's great for kids, you know, people that have families too, so they can spend lots of time with their kids. Um mm-hmm. You know, that was on my mind as well and, you know, family time and time to hang out with friends and all sorts. So, yeah. Yeah, nice. And train Boston. And train my dog. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So, yeah, a couple of things. We'll come, you mentioned what you're training for, so we'll come on to that. But one thing that we did discuss, and it relates back to your genie question, is injury. So Mm. when you talked about your genie question, we framed it, I feel like, in terms of adventure or sport. But you mentioned yesterday how... You can't get injured for your current role. Yeah, yeah, it's um, yeah. If you get injured, you you're off the trucks. You're out of a job, essentially. So, <clears throat> and as little as you said, like even like a broken finger, you know, it doesn't have to yeah, be wow. a major injury because you can't mm. operate the equipment. So that's a big consideration in terms of looking after yourself every day. As yeah, well. absolutely. And um, I mean, the fire department in Adelaide are, are pretty good at looking after their own you know if there is someone that gets injured on or off the job they'll try and find you a spot in light duties or the store or somewhere um you know driving a commander around or something like that um so there are options but you know there's over a thousand people in the fire department you know there's only a limited number of light duty kind of roles so yeah um you got to kind of be careful a little bit totally yeah Yeah, that's actually a huge consideration you're job as part of your physical health mm. yeah, yeah yeah wow have you yeah. ever been out on any like live fires oh yeah 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 yeah, <gasps> yeah. like the big ones like a couple of years ago and what was it 2019? oh the bushfires yeah the big bushfires yeah, yeah yeah i mean so we're a metropolitan service um so we go to like house fires and okay. out in the area that i work in there's like lots of dumps and industry okay. so we get big shed fires and sure. the recycling depots and things catch fire and whatever so um sometimes you're at those jobs for days 
Um, but we also do get sent to some of those really bad bushfires. So I went over to um, the Kangaroo Island bushfires, was over there for a week, um, working in conjunction with um, <clears throat> the Country Fire Service and Forestry Fire Service. And was also up in the Adelaide Hills um, and also went up to the Cherry Gardens fires up in the Adelaide Hills as well. So we do get sent when things get pretty bad and yeah. sometimes interstate deployments as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so um, in terms of keeping healthy and what you're training for, you mentioned a New Zealand trip. I feel like upper body strength, by the way, has got to be handy for climbing, surely. Is that not a thing? Yeah. yeah. Um, and Your then... arms burn out pretty quickly, though, if you're just using them. <laughs> True. I'm not a climber, and I have been told that. Use your legs, Sarah. I'm like, oh, yeah. they are attached to the wall as well. <laughs> <laughs> and probably my strongest thing as well. So, yeah. Doesn't look as cool if you're not doing like a cliffhanger or something, though. <laughs> Just like, I just like to one, swing. One yeah. 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 <laughs> so what do you have planned for New Zealand? Um, I have planned, had planned and still have planned. Mm, yeah. Um, <laughs> Fingers crossed, touch <laughs> wood, everything else. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, uh, Mount Cook. So to climb Mount Cook. Yeah. And what does that look like? Are you just heading off on your own or? Um, I was going to maybe go with a mate who I went um with my ex as well, we went and climbed Mount Aspiring a couple of years ago. Um, so that was awesome. Um, and did some other sort of short little rock climbs and stuff around um, the area down there. So Whereabouts is that? Dave? South Island. South. Yep. Um, out of sort of out of Wanaka. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. So uh, at this stage, I've just booked just so I can hopefully just go and get it done because I don't have the the skills myself to go and go off solo and do a mountain like that. It's a pretty, um, pretty tough mountain in a lot of ways to go and climb. Yeah. Um, it's do, often do underestimated. Do people do it solo, even if they are very strong, you know? Um, probably not. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think so. Um, yeah. Most people, like I said before, it's more fun sharing adventures and yeah, totally. you know, a bit more safety as well. So yeah. Um, the weather, um, as lots of people know, in New Zealand can change very quickly, especially up in the mountains. So that's um, a big factor um, and tricky thing. You know, you can often go um, to places like that with the best of intentions and all the skills in the world, but then the weather changes and you can't get up the mountain. So it's, um, yeah, going to be a bit hit and miss, but the beautiful thing about New Zealand is there's so much to do. So mm. even if um, objective A isn't achieved, there's, you know, B, C, D, E and F <laughs> as fallbacks. Um, so, yeah, like I'm I'm just an everyday adventurer. <laughs> I don't have amazing – I'm not a – I wouldn't call myself a rock climber. I wouldn't call myself a mountaineer. Um, I've done bits and pieces. I've got enough to not do – silly things and not put myself in danger and you know some basic rope skills and stuff like that um but i i'm not gonna attempt a mountain like that by myself mm-hmm. um so yeah i think that's the kind of cool thing about being an everyday adventurer is like you can just get out and hire a guide and um you know dependent independent of your skill level you know it's a, a really cool way to have some local knowledge to help you out and do something that you otherwise wouldn't do. Totally. And how do you train for climbing? Like, is it just a whole bunch of pull-ups and, <laughs> you know, arm strength and shot? Because I've got no clue how to train for a climbing trip, right? And, yeah, I have to say, like, I 
I have been fortunate to trail run around that area. It's beautiful. I think of Mount Cook as being this enormous snowy peak. So I don't even know what this really looks like. Is this like an ice climbing thing? Like, excuse my ignorance, but I have no idea how long this is going to take you or like, yeah, how much preparation you need to do. Like, obviously you're going with a guide. So that's great from a support point mm. of view. But what does the trip actually look like? And what is the preparation, like Kristen said? Yeah, well, um, so yeah, the... the the preparation, I suppose, is um, a bit dependent on what the trip is going to look like. Yeah, okay, fair. <laughs> so <laughs> um, there's lots of different ways to climb a mountain, mm. um, and every mountain has different routes people want to put up on it, um, established routes, non-established routes, um, technical routes, non less technical routes. So you, you might want to climb an alpine style, which is just really light and fast, um, or you might want to climb in more expedition style, so you're climbing and setting camps and going on from there and going up and down a bit, carrying gear and things like that. So it just depends basically on, on what your skill levels are, um, how long you're willing to stay on the mountain, the style in which you want to climb the mountain. Um, so, yeah, I think most people are limited by time um, and and also money. So and one is almost the same in a lot of ways. So, um, you know, going with the guide, you're paying a guide per day. So it comes down to what you can afford and... You know, you could pay a guide for six months to take you and you'd get up there when there's a weather window, but, you know, I've probably only got about a week or so. So, you know, you want to go there, experience the area, acclimatize a little bit. Um, Guides usually want to suss you out too, see what your skill levels are, um, because quite rightly, they probably shouldn't trust just what you say. You say, I'm the best climber, whatever. (laughs) But My name's Alex Yeah. <laughs> you know, you might be the best climber at your bouldering gym, yeah. but it doesn't equate to being able to climb mountains. So if you've got a good guide, yeah, they should be asking you the right questions and spending a bit of time with you before just, you know, strapping you in and taking you up anywhere. So, um, yeah, the time frames and everything just really depend um, on what your, what your capabilities are and your intentions are. Um, preparation wise, um, obviously there's all the equipment, um, going with a guide can help because they'll most probably have like the ropes and things like that if you need it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, you know, always more comfy to have your own stuff, especially like things like crampons and harnesses and stuff like that. So, um, but all of that, you can hire that, I suppose as well. If you really want to, if you really just want to give something a crack, just go and hire all the gear, see if you like it. Um, you know, I've done some basic level mountaineering courses over the years when I was working out if it was something I wanted to pursue and if I enjoyed it. And then, cause like most outdoor sports equipment costs a fair bit of money. So try before you buy if you can. Um, and then you work out what works for you. So yeah, there's a whole equipment preparation side and then physical preparation. A big thing is, yeah, just fitness. You got to be generally fit. Because it's long days of walking, climbing, exerting energy. Um, so that's one thing. Strength, you got to, like, climbing mountains is all about legs and lungs. Um, so strong legs, carrying a pack usually um, anywhere from, you know, 10 to 20 kilos in weight, um, possibly more, maybe less if you pay a porter or something. But <laughs> um, yeah, so leg strength um, and endurance is really important. Um, you don't have to have arms like Arnold Schwarzenegger, like it's, <laughs> you know, um, it's more about technique and stuff like that. Mount Cook is, um, most of the routes are quite, um, like extended, um, 
and mixed um, terrain. So you've got rock, ice, snow, um, sort of everything in, in between. Um, there's a there's a grand traverse you can do on Mount Cook. So you go one side to the other in one hit, which is um, pretty sought after thing to do, but quite difficult and challenging. You've got to be able to move fast. Um, so that's part of the preparation too, no matter who you're going with, whether that's a guide or your best mate. Um, sometimes spent practicing your rope skills is really important. Um, any any rock climbing route, any anywhere you go, whether that's you know running over the Alps or something, you're not going to be able to do it if you're going too slowly. But so you got to streamline things as much as you can. Yeah, cool. And so when are you planning on going? Um, December. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be pretty good weather. Hopefully. Yeah, usually time of you know, the climbing season sort of yeah november december january cool plenty there. of time and mm. then in between you're also looking at you doing uta i heard yes yeah, yeah. ultra trail australia 100 kilometers for anyone who hasn't listened to a previous episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was um yeah so i was at work and the guys love to introduce me to anybody that walks through the door whether that's a delivery person a tradie other fireys and the officers say, oh, have you met Leif? He's an ultra, he's an ultra marathon runner. <laughs> <laughs> and they just think it's hilarious for some reason. I don't know why. But anyway, um, so they're asking me, sort of, oh, what are you doing next? Like, oh, I'm not really sure. Don't Nothing planned at the moment. I'd had a bit of a ITB injury. So I was a bit like, oh, a bit, my motivation for running was wavering. Um, but I thought, no, I need to, I need to do something to shut these guys up for one. <laughs> And just to get my own motivation back because, yeah, I just needed to, needed to get out. Um, so, yeah, I looked at what was around and in a sort of a reasonable time frame. Um, and, yeah, UTA was a pretty big one that popped up um, within sort of reaching distance. So I didn't have to train for too long for it, <laughs> but I still had enough time to train. Um, so I was at work and, like, the entries opened Um sort of that morning or whatever, and there was obviously a big hoo-ha, anybody that knows UTA, it sells out pretty quick. And it did. And I was trying to like log on and get an entry for the 50, but then we got a job at work. Uh, bells dropped, had to turn out, and so I was like, oh, no, I can't enter now. <laughs> so, um, we went off and did what we did, came back, sold out. <laughs> um, so I was like, oh, well, there goes that. Damn, I don't have to run 50 days, what a shame. <laughs> Um, and then I was kind of like, ah, oh, no, it'll still be good. So I started browsing. There's like a Facebook group for UTA entries that people want to sell on because they can't go for whatever reason. So I was looking for a 50k entry, and then someone said, oh, I've got a 100k entry. <laughs> Does anybody want it? And I was like, hmm. I look. I clicked on the post, and there was like all these comments underneath it. And um, I'm reading through the comments, thinking, surely somebody snapped this up. And then didn't look like anybody had. I was like, can you message me? Message me and I'll take it. Message me and I'll take it. I'm like, well, maybe I'll just message the person and see if they've still got it. And luckily or unluckily, yes, they had it. And I got it off them. So. Bummer. <laughs> Here I am training for the 100K UTA. 
I didn't know that background. That's awesome. Because it's, like, <laughs> it's oh. hard to get into. Full yeah. stop. 50, 100, 21, it's so or quickly. it's the 22 maybe. Yeah. yeah. All of them yeah. sell out so quickly. Mm. So yeah, my next question was like, were you one of those guys like on the computer every second <laughs> refreshing until it opened? Yeah. yeah well, I was, but then... Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're there for the 50. You might as well do 100, right? <laughs> yeah. It's not going to be your first 100 either. No, it'll be my second hundred. Mm-hmm. What was your other one that you did? Uh, Surf Coast Century. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Bit Very... different. I heard Surf Coast is a little bit flatter. I mean, everything is flatter compared to ETA. In yeah, I haven't actually researched ETA very much. Um, just no, through just what people up. have told me, there's like 8,000 steps. <laughs> um, the, you know, a lot of ascent, descent, all sorts of stuff. So I think, yeah. It's um, from memory. Surf Coast Century felt pretty hilly. Okay, um, <laughs> but it, it was my first Victoria. Yeah, and yeah, Torquay okay. out of Torquay, and yeah, 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 out through there. It's an awesome course, um, but I distinctly remember saying to my ex at the time after I'd finished the race, "I never need to do 100 k's again." <laughs> <laughs> unless he i miss out on the last... 50 and a thing comes up on facebook and i message the guy and oh i'm running 100k yeah, yeah. i think everybody says that at one point and then they sign up for another one yeah <laughs> just had to let a couple of years go by before i yeah yeah forgotten yeah. the bad bits enough that's right <laughs> but you've done not only just the 100k you've also done the whole larapenta trail from my understanding is that right yeah so i did um well what through rapid ascents they they're the ones that put on and organized the Surf Coast Century and the Margaret River Ultra, um, which I think is the second biggest ultra in Australia after UTA. Um, and it's amazing too. Um, and they also put on Lara, Ron Larapinta. So, and those three, the long courses of them all, are called the Triple Crown. Right. It's the Triple Crown of Australia, isn't it? It's, yeah, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Different to the Candice Burt Triple Crown of 200. Yeah, 200. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's the Triple Crown of Australia. Let's not get too carried yeah. away. <laughs> but, you know, it, it was cool. Like, they give you a little incentive. You get, like, this cool Patagonia jacket as you if you complete the Triple Crown and you name on some plaque and things like that. Um, so, anyway, like... I like to see things through to completion. So I thought, oh, there's a triple crown. I should probably do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. Did, was Run Lara Printer first one? Yeah, I'm pretty certain Run Lara Printer was the first. Yeah. yeah. And then I did And then you did Surf Coast. Yes. And then Margaret River with the COVID delay. Yeah. That's right. Yep. Yeah. So I was supposed to do Mar- uh, Margaret River. Well, I did it last year, so 2021, but I was supposed to do it 2020, but because of COVID, couldn't get over there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they're all amazing races, um, all different in their own right. And yeah, and that's just another example, I think, of how one thing led to another. Like I, I, I wouldn't have called prior to that myself an ultra runner or anything like, but just, I don't even know how, how we got onto it. Just Googling something one day, maybe and like, that looks cool. Like a stage race in Northern Territory. Let's go give it a crack and. Yeah, we did, and um, and then you find out about something else, so that flows into the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. Uh, yeah, so that was a great way, and meet some cool people through doing those things, which then further stimulates your interest, and yeah. And when you, so when I met you doing Run Lara Pinta 2018, you were doing that as part of a bigger project for yourself. Mm. Do you want to share a little bit about what that was? Yeah, okay. Um, so at that time, I was working for Operation Flinders. And I was all about, so the, the, most of the kids in the program um, didn't have opportunities like I had. 
Um, and that made me sad. <laughs> so um, I thought, you know, part of my job here is to really um, promote opportunities in the outdoors for these kids. And so I thought, what better way to do that than to sort of lead by example and sort of show that anything was possible. Like the work I was doing with them was more about little adventures in their own backyards because they were kids from all over the state, um, some from, you know, remote Aboriginal communities. So finding things in their backyards to, to do an adventure style that they were interested in was challenging at times. But it's amazing what's out there. So... Um, I also wanted to fundraise for the organization at the time because it's a not-for-profit um, charity for kids, basically. So um, I wanted to help raise money to put towards giving these kids opportunities. Um, so I did this um, personal challenge, I suppose you could call it, called Six Trails for Change um, to hopefully change some of the lives of these kids. So the six challenges, six trails that um, I did were kind of six personal challenges um, one of them was Run Lara Pinta. Um, one of them was a local 50k ultra, which was actually my first ultra in Cleveland um, Wildlife Park, um, which I thought was horrendous. Um, <laughs> and, There's a theme here. Yeah. And so yeah. then I went on yeah. to... Yeah. So I thought, oh, that was horrendous, let's do another Yeah. <laughs> so there's something addictive about these running events, but... Yeah, I had come from, I guess, a road running track background a little bit. Like I wasn't a great runner. Um, but doing, comparing road running and track to running trail races, just, it's just a whole nother world, like a, a, a welcoming world of friendly people that, you know, will stop and literally pick you up if you've fallen down. Um, they'll offer you gels. They'll cheer you on as you run past them. They'll, you know, all of that. You just don't get that in road races. Um, and it's a lot nicer on the body too, running trails. So, um, yeah, so I did the Cleveland 50. Um, I did a race, well, just a fun run really, that Operation Flinders put on each year, which was a marathon um, through the Adelaide Hills as a fundraiser. Um, I did that and did run Lara Pinta. And then oh, yeah, I went with my ex-wife and we came across to Kagari, Fraser Island, and we um, fast-packed the um, the Great Walk on the island, which was pretty cool. So we did that in yeah, two and a half days, I think it was, in the end. And first night got our tent ripped open and um, our one of our running packs stolen by a dingo. Oh, seriously? Uh, yeah. Because <laughs> oh, Sarah and I were like half looking at doing that as well. And Sarah's like, oh, we might actually get eaten by a dingo. I'm like, no, 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 no. We'll I knew be this fine. about Mel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Wow. Uh, yeah. I remember waking up in the morning and um, I went out to go to the toilet and kind of turned around and looked back at the tent and I saw Mel's running pack like 20 meters away from the tent. And I went back to the tent, so I was still half asleep. I'm like, Mel, why did you leave your pack outside last It could have been taken by a dingo or something. And she's like, I didn't. I'm like, well, it's outside now. What's happened? And then we, like, investigated. And sure enough, there's, like, dingo prints going to and from the tent <laughs> between the pack. And then the pack had been ripped open. And that eaten, like, a, a ripped open pack of paracetamol, um, oh, a chocolate bar and something else. <laughs> there wasn't a lot in there for them. but. Yeah. And they'd ripped uh, a hole in the tent. So I was using a using a friend's tarp tent, actually, because we were trying to go light. Um, tarp tents are really lightweight tents. Um, 
And then down the bottom of it, it had like a mesh panel and they'd ripped through the fly and then opened up through the mesh panel. And they'd obviously tried to pull out my pack, which was, um, it was like a black diamond speed 30, if you're familiar with that pack. So sort of a small lightweight pack, but it was a big enough not to pull through the hole. Um, so they went for Mel's little trail running um, like vest. Direction vest yeah, something. instead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, that was a great start to that, but we got through <laughs> it and had no more run-ins with dingoes. So no more bad ones anyway. Um, and then the other trails I did were um, a couple of mountains in Nepal. So I went back to Nepal and climbed. Um, my main objective was to go and climb Mount Amadabalam which again is in the Mount Everest region and it's like it dominates the skyline for the whole, basically the whole of the Mount Everest base camp walk. Um, It's just like a quintessential pointy triangular mountain. It's got this beautiful um, Serac, which is a huge like house-sized chunk of ice hanging off the side of it up up near the the summit. Um, And they call that the Dublin. Um, So it's in, in... uh, for the Sherpas and Nepalese, the mountain, um, I think it means mother's necklace. And so the Dublin, the Serac, is like the, the jewel of the necklace. And the either side of the mountain um, are like her arms going out and protecting something. Wow, cool. So, yeah, it's an awesome mountain. It was like from the first time I went to Nepal, like, oh, I'd love to climb that. <laughs> um, yeah, you just see it everywhere. It's amazing. Um, and then to acclimatize for that, I went and um, we did like a – a long hike for a couple of weeks with a few other people and then um they they left me um which was yeah one of the hardest moments of my life um yeah we just had our like our wedding anniversary in one of the tea huts and stuff like that and then the next day um my now ex um left with our two other friends walked down the valley and I you know could watch them for you know like half an hour walking down the valley and that was just heartbreaking <laughs> um and i was like i almost walked after them i said no nah, this isn't worth it like i just want to be with people again you know and share this experience because it was just and it was just me and my sherpa and i'm like you know he can hardly speak english like this i'm not really gonna be able to share it with him um and climbing a dangerous mountain potentially mm, like this is yeah. a serious climb that you're about to do as well yes yeah yeah yeah, so the first mountain I did just after they left was Lubuchi East Peak, um, which a lot of uh, the people who try and go and climb Mount Everest go and acclimatize on Lubuchi because it's a relatively safe mountain. It's about um, a bit over 6,000 meters. Um, and then did that, summited that, and then went and climbed Mount Armadabalam sort of basically in one hit. Um, uh, so from base camp, just popped up through the camps. Um, so it was up and down in, I think, six days. Um, most people take weeks acclimatizing, climbing up and down, up and down to acclimatize on the mountain. Um, but because I was already acclimatized, I could just go straight up, which was lucky because the weather window was very, very small and I just scraped it in. Um, yeah, but the week after I left, there was an Australian guy who actually did die climbing the mountain. Um, so yeah, it's, it's pretty full on. Um, Dublin's just under 7,000 meters. So it's, I think it's six, eight. Um, yeah, but it's beautiful. It's an amazing mountain. Um, yeah, loved it there. So what do you do when you get to the summit of a mountain like that? Uh, 
Yeah, your high five, your Sherpa. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you usually have a photo with the prayer flags up there. <laughs> and um, yeah, you typically don't spend too long on the summit mm. because really that's only halfway. You still got to get down. Yeah. Um, trying there, to... There's no bus. What? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But um, so I used to paraglide and um, the Sherpa who I climb with actually was the Sherpa for the first person to have a paraglide off the top of Armour Dublin. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And that guy actually gave him, my Sherpa, the sleeping bag he was still using to that day. Oh, wow. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. So yeah. Cool. So you could paraglide down. And that's a big thing in um, particularly Europe is hike and fly. Yes. For emissions yes. paragliding. Yeah. Which is a cool way to get off a mountain because totally. going down sucks. <laughs> yes, it does. Yeah. Oh, that's sick. If yeah. I was the Sherpa, I think I'd be asking for a lift. I mean, paragliding's pretty cool. Like, <laughs> yeah. You with heights? Oh, uh, I've been paragliding and love it and wanted to really? like, learn solo. Yeah. I know. It's weird. I was saying that today. It's, yeah. it's a conundrum. It's not quite this, I don't know. You just like run off the edge of the cliff and then you're off and you're floating around. So it's different to like standing on the edge. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe because you've got the equipment, but the equipment can fail at any time. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying it's, <laughs> I'm not saying it's logical, but I just know I love the sensation. Yeah, it's amazing. Phil and I always say in our next life we'll be um, base jumpers, but we mm-hmm. just have too much to hang around for in this life. <laughs> yep. It'll be the next one that we're together. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, base jumping's next level. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> have you done anything like that? I've skydived once, okay. but just tandem obviously um but no paragliding yeah not without its perils um especially in big mountains like over in the himalaya flying in in those is just uh yeah not for me really um there's too much atmospheric issues that can go wrong and change and you're so high things can change very quickly so and so if that guy climbed up i'm thinking paragliding kit's pretty bulky was that a lot like would that have been a huge uh, they can be. You can get pretty lightweight kits these days. Oh, okay. um, you know, you get a whole kit weighing in about three kilos. Oh, okay. Whoa. I have it completely wrong. All right. Yeah, yeah. yeah wow. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Incredible. And it seems like a lot of your adventures, um, whether they are, you know, these running type adventures or climbing, is actually um, inspired, I guess you could say, by some of these fundraising events. Yeah. Uh, you have recently done something that I never actually knew even existed, which was the Posty Bike Challenge. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think I actually wrote down because it was quite a like perfect description of what I thought it probably was. Running through the magnificent Flinders Ranges this year, uh, we'll once again see a wide range of spectacular terrain. Terrain that the humble posty bike should not be capable of. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, like, talk a little bit about that, because what I sort of picked up was it's kind of like the shitbox rally. Is that the right term for yeah, the thing that so. you buy the $1,000 car yeah. and you've got it, and it's still raising money mm-hmm. as well? Yeah, so all the, like, the variety bash. Yeah, 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 all those different types of events. So, yeah, talk about the posty bike challenge, because I think that is so awesome. <laughs> In a word outrageous yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was nuts so i uh, we do have a bit of american listeners just describe what a posty bike is because everybody in australia can yeah. picture it right okay. yeah 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 very quintessential little machine shout um, out british listeners and everyone else as well as the americans thank you Kristen. yeah oh do you guys have posty bikes no oh okay cool. that's a very australian yeah. thing yeah. yeah that's yeah. what i thought yeah. yeah i've not seen them anywhere else in the world or any really a bike like it i mean they're made by honda so it's a honda yeah CT 110, if you want to look it up. Yeah. Um, like which tiny. <laughs> yeah, 110cc, you know. 
um, little posty bike thing. Um, it, it carries about eight liters of fuel, I think, under the seat. Uh, <laughs> pretty sure I had a scooter that was 110. Yeah. <laughs> like, it is small. Yeah. yeah. And so literally the, um, the Australian posties, the people who deliver your mail, um, would ride around with panniers on these bikes and load it up with letters and parcels and deliver you your letters on these bikes. So, um, yeah, they're little usually red, red and white, because that's the colours of Australia Post. <laughs> um, and they're kind of getting pretty rare now, these bikes. So I managed to pick one up um, fairly cheap a couple of years ago. Um, and it was pretty challenging getting on the ride because people go back year after year to do it and there's only limited spots. Gotcha. So they always allow it for the people that have done it before to come back and do it again as first preference. And then you've got to wait till somebody doesn't want to do it one year to get a spot. So I had to wait a year. So I got in my second time around, <laughs> a bit like the Fieries. And um, yeah, and then you go ride uh, approximately a thousand Ks over four days through the, the Northern Flinders Ranges, which is rugged you know low range four-wheel drive territory um across <laughs> a lot of yeah on a posty bike you know so you whack some um knobbly tires on it and away you go basically so you had to carry um if you didn't have any sort of auxiliary fuel tank on it which most of the old hands do <laughs> like i i had to strap back um two five liter jerry cans of um, fuel on the back of mine um it's because you run out of fuel and you gotta restop and yeah. refill and to get through the stages um they have uh so there was 78 riders i think this year and we raised about one hundred twenty thousand dollars this year um we're going towards the cancer council's um copper coast retreat houses where you know families who are have someone in the family um struggling with cancer can go and have a bit of rest and rehabilitation and family time away at these um beach side shacks basically so it's pretty cool cause um and yeah, raised really good money through doing it. Um, but yeah, it's just outrageous. So it's, <laughs> um, yeah, you're going full tilt. Yeah, you've got either full throttle or fully off the throttle. There's no in between. It's not a race. It's um, but it kind of turns into say, a yeah, race, right? <laughs> <laughs> but everyone, you know, if you stack it, which pretty much everybody does. Um, like I came off was thrown off six times. Really? Um, there were a couple of bad injuries. Okay. Um, some broken ribs, um, bad concussion. I'm sure the waiver on this thing of getting in <laughs> You sign your life like, away. Yeah. Like, Literally, they are not responsible for anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was actually pretty nervous. Like, I've, I've ridden motorbikes since I was 18, and um, I've only had a couple of crashes, touch wood. And... Um, yeah, so I was pretty nervous actually riding this, especially after my first off, because I'm like, oh, work, I'm going to like break something, yeah. and this is going to be bad. Yeah. But managed to get through. Um, so, you know, every day you're getting covered in dust and mud, and <laughs> it's it's crazy. Um, yeah, uh, it's the bikes get trashed as well. My bike was – I bought off some old guy who'd restored it for his daughter. She didn't like it and thought it was too hard to ride. Um, they're a little bit awkward to ride. They've got this like semi-automatic clutch on them and things like that. And so she didn't want it. So I picked it up cheap and it was like pristine, like fully oh, restored, man. pristine posty bike. <laughs> so I rocked up um, to the briefing and stuff and everyone's checking each other's bikes. And like, I had three offers on my bike within to, to buy it 
within the first half an hour. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> just like, shows you the state of everybody else. Yeah, yeah. they're like, you're not going to ride that, are you? I'm like, what do you mean? Why? I don't think it will make it. And they're like, oh, no, it'll make it. Um, it's just too good. That's <laughs> <laughs> not the point of this thing. <laughs> yeah. So I was lucky. I only came home with like a broken mirror, broken clutch handle, um, busted up shock and the rear crush bushings and whatever in the rear hub were, were gone. So, yeah. yeah, it wasn't too bad. I didn't totally destroy it. Some did get totally destroyed. Yeah. One in particular was um, a guy got a flat tire, like there's multiple flat tires every day. Of course. Um, but, uh, yeah, so the one guy got a flat tire. He'd just got this bike. And um, so they've, they've got like a support vehicle, has bike trailers. And so they close to the lunch stop. So they're like, oh, just chuck it on the trailer. We'll fix it at the lunch stop rather than hold everything up. And so, yeah, they put it on the trailer. But whoever was driving the car didn't strap the bike down properly. And uh, went off he goes down the track, which, again, is really rough tracks, four-drive tracks. Yeah. And, I don't know, he may or may not have been going a little bit too fast. The bike flew off, literally flew off the trailer oh, and rode it off. <laughs> it was in pieces. <laughs> And that would be such a bummer, too, if this guy was waiting all year to do it and yep. he was getting stoked and everything. Oh, doing it. Yeah. At least if it, at least if you drop the bike, it's not, like, super heavy. That's right. Like anything yeah. else, you just kind of just pick it back up. Pick right? it up. Yeah. 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 People are driving off, falling into big ruts, you know, like, waist-high ruts. and Yeah. Because you just bounce from one side of a track to another and... Yeah, it's carnage, but it's good fun. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I looked at what it actually was. I'm like, this is no way an actual thing. <laughs> mm. And again, like that's just like everyday people that have that started out just a couple of mates literally sitting in a pub saying, you know, we should raise some money for like, to help out this charity. And what could we do? And they, they, they were from the country. They love riding dirt bikes and stuff. Like, yeah. let's just do a ride, motorbike ride. And, and it's just growing. And now it's just all sorts of people come from all over the state, interstate, just to come and bash around and post your bikes for a few days. So. Totally. And sign their life away. Yeah. <laughs> and their bikes. Yes. <laughs> and potentially their bikes. Oh, I'm pretty sure, correct me, I'm sure nobody reuses their bike. Yeah, I thought I should probably sell mine and buy a worse one. <laughs> <laughs> that that poor guy who, like, lovingly restored it. It's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> he just, like, ridden it off. That's yeah. great. Yeah. Uh, anyways, I read that one and I thought that's pretty sick. <laughs> yeah. And, like, I've always loved motorbikes and... um I did another fundraising trip again for the Cancer Council because my mum had um, <clears throat> got diagnosed with cancer sort of 10 years ago. Um, and just after she got diagnosed, like around the same time, and a few friends had conjured up some trip. The the girl who got me into riding motorbikes, who I worked in the pub with, um, she was kind of an adventurous soul as well, still is, and had this crazy idea to ride from London down to Cape Town on motorbikes. She's like, you want to come? I'm like, yes, yes let's, why not? Of course. Why not? Like, this is at the, in 2010. So, uh, yeah, we spent about a year sort of just planning that trip. I'd use the word planning loosely because we didn't know what we are doing. But, and we just, you know, saved up our pennies and sort of worked out how we'd buy bikes and or ship bikes over there. And we ended up buying bikes in London. Actually, she got hers from Scotland. Oh, nice. Yes. Shout out. Shout out. Yeah, not, it wasn't so nice, so nice for her, actually, because it was that year where it was, like, super, super cold and, like, Heathrow Airport closed because of snow and ice and stuff and it was freezing and she had to ride her bike back from, from Scotland. Scotland to London. Yeah, that was the and, year before I moved to Australia, so, yeah. Oh, do you remember that year? Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. And coming from Australia, like, yeah. um, it was the end of the year. We went in December, like over Christmas and New Year's. So it was summer Winter, here right? and yeah. freezing over there, literally. So yeah, we, um, did a big three month motorbike trip down through London, France, Spain, and Western Africa. And we only got as far as Burkina Faso and then pulled the pin and it got too hard. So we still talk about maybe one day going back and finishing off the Last other bit. bit. <laughs> what does it got too hard mean? Like in what sense? Um, so we were pretty physically and emotionally, I guess, like pretty drained. Mm. Um, you're riding, like we were riding from sunrise to sunset pretty much every day. Um, and, you know, mostly off-road um, as much as we could. And we got lost a fair bit because we were back then we were just map and compass. Like we didn't take any GPS or, you know, Garmin reaches or even a PLB or anything like that. We we're mm. just, you know, bare bones stuff. Um, and just finding our way, asking locals which way to go here, which way to get there. And often you get conflicting opinions on which way it was which from the locals <laughs> even. So, um, and then the most draining thing was sort of on our funds because um, over in Africa they've got like all these different levels of police, like military police, local police, um, national police. And they'd have all these police and military checkpoints set up everywhere. And everyone you'd go through, you'd have to pay a bribe, essentially. So, well, they'd take your passport, then you have to pay an even bigger bribe to get your passport back. And because we were white, you'd have to pay a bribe for that. (laughs) And so that just got really draining. Every day, you know, you're having to carry money and, yeah, it, was a bit annoying um to say the least so yeah um we just pulled the pin and like one of the bikes was starting to break down a lot as well so it was just all becoming too hard and we're running out of time too so yes yeah a huge trip so by the signs of it amazing yeah yeah Yeah, i reckon you need to go back yeah (laughs) want to come I've yes. never even been on a motorbike. Like, I don't know. That's right. I have. I'll go. Yeah. There you go. Kristen's in. That's fine. Yeah. My dad does a lot of motorbike riding still back at home. He's like in his 60s. He's great. retired and stuff. So, yeah, he's either skiing, motorbiking, or pushbiking. Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah. So, he's yeah. all over the shop. <laughs> I think all of these things for me are just uh, like, I like feeling like I can escape at any time. Yeah. You know? <clears throat> Whether that's getting out for a run, getting out for a rock climb, getting out on a motorbike and going further full driving, you know, whatever, and it can just take you places and escape from things yeah. when you need it. Another thing that you love doing, which we kind of talked about over dinner as well, was the um, search and rescue stuff that you've been doing with your dog, Boston, yeah. is the Kelpie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a cool little thing off to the side, which a lot of people don't get to do. And it sounds like it ties in with work as well. It yeah. does. Yeah. So that's part of our urban search and rescue capability um, and the task force. So, yeah, it's... um. Essentially, the Urban Search and Rescue Task Force is attached to the Metropolitan Fire Service and the SA South Australian Rescue Canine Group, which is a voluntary not-for-profit group, is attached to the Urban Search and Rescue Group and in turn the fire department. So that's a bit how you're going, but um, yeah, so I had had Boston for my Kelpie um, for three years. already so i'd done you know basic obedience training with him as most dog owners do and then you know he's a high drive kelpie he needed a bit more um so i started doing some agility stuff with him um which he loved and was all right and then i got in the fire service and then i found out through getting in there that there's this canine 
um, capability. So I thought, oh, that sounds pretty cool. I'll go check it out. Um, and yeah, one thing led to another. Next minute, I'm signed up and training my dog to be a search and rescue dog. And <laughs> um, yeah, he loves it. It's pretty much the only thing that ties him out. Um, just the mental stimulation of it. So um, and plays you know a really important role as part of the fire services capability too. How often do you guys do training? Uh, well, I I train him to some degree every day. Yeah. Um, uh, but the structured trainings are twice a week, so we do like a usually a Tuesday or a Wednesday night, and then um, a Saturday. So Saturdays sometimes go all day, um, but the dogs aren't obviously doing stuff the whole time. They do little stints. Um, usually work for uh, up to sort of half an hour. Um, Which is a long time for a lot of dogs to work. I always tell people when they're first starting off, like two to five minutes is best for a dog, right? Those short, sharp, sweet, efficient reps. Yeah. Um, And then you work up to the half hour Mm -hmm. to an hour reps. Like that's a long time for a dog. Yeah. So this is half an hour of the, the, the established dogs when they're actually out performing a search. Mm -hmm. Um, so we'll search, um, part of the assessments and stuff to get all signed off is um, you have to do like a, a three-person search. So you've got three victims who are hiding somewhere in a, a simulated collapsed building scenario we call the rubble pile, mm-hmm. which is you know concrete slabs, pancaked like car parks, literally with cars squashed in between them. Wow. They, there's tunnels underground. There's shipping containers stacked on top of each other. Um, a, an old train and train station set up. Um yeah, piles of pallets and things. So there's all little hidey holes in there that are uh, constructed holes, um, hides um, that we put assistants down. And they hang out there, like big kudos to them, they hang out in these dirty, <laughs> filthy, dark holes for hours sometimes yeah. um, to let their scent kind of pull up. And then the dogs go and search. So, yeah, for the uh, qualified dogs, yeah, up to sort of half an hour can take to search. Usually we try and... Should be able to achieve a three-person search in 20 minutes, um, which is pretty pretty quick. Um, but the dogs are working hard. You know, they're running around um, all sorts of weather conditions, day and night, um, and they're working really hard that whole time. Scent work with their nose, obviously, taking directions from us, the handlers, um, dealing with distractions and noises, and you know, and distractions on a urban search and rescue site are immense. So there's fire there's chainsaws there's disc cutters there's vehicles driving around um other dogs other people you know loud bangs all sorts of things so the dogs are pretty robust and it does take a long time to work up to that so for most dogs um pretty much starting from scratch you you're probably not going to get not going to get signed off um within you know a year and a half is is pretty good that so, seems even pretty quick for yeah. a lot of dogs. Yeah, yeah, like a year and a half to go through all of that to build up a pretty robust dog. Yeah. That'd be pretty incredible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's good. That's a cool, really cool thing to do with your mm. dog. Um, is Have you, like, done anything real-life scenario with him? Has he found Not him? yet. I have Hopefully he doesn't yet. need no. to. But, Just yeah. training scenarios, yeah, which, cool. yeah. yeah. At the moment, he's, he's nailing pretty well, so, yeah. There you go. Future's bright. Yeah. Very cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's making me want to get another dog though, but I want to keep going on adventures, oh, so it's hard. Yep, yep. <laughs> hard to get someone to look after two dogs, let alone one. I go through waves. I'm like, oh, next time we'll just have one dog. And then I'm sitting here with two dogs going, oh, what's three or four dogs when you have two dogs? 
<laughs> yeah. So, I don't know. I'm just sticking with the one barky dog. <laughs> <laughs> So, conscious of time and the fact that Ness is going absolutely crazy in her crate upstairs. Apologies. Um, She's jealous we should be talking about her. She is. is. She's like, hey, I could search and rescue (laughs) something in a non-scary environment. Um, Thank you so much for your time today, Leif. We are going to finish with a very important question. Hmm. So, and I'm just going to give the context. I mean, if this is the first time listening, this is why we asked this question. So I used to coach a group of little girls mountain biking on our local trails. And it was just an hour session and they couldn't make it through the hour without needing to go to the toilet. And their request was always, oh, we need to go for a wild wee. Okay. Technical term. So please, can you share with us your wildest wee? Yeah, that one's that one's easy. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, <All> right. <laughs> and I've, I've listened to most of your podcasts, and um, every time I hear this question, I always come back to the same one. Oh, there we so go. So we know that it's the right one. I know it's the yeah. right one, and it was uh, when I was climbing Mount Armadablam in Nepal. Um, if you Google Camp Two Armadablam, uh, you'll see why it was my wildest way. Sarah, you you would not go there. Um, is it just like a it's cliff edge? A, yeah it's a rock ledge that can accommodate about six maximum like six tenths and they're on all sorts of angles like oh, wow. tied tied off to the cliff um yeah <laughs> so and to get into camp two you've climbed um already a couple of days so you're at about six thousand meters just over six thousand meters above sea level um and you kind of bit of a technical approach to get into camp two sort of rock climbing style and you kind of pull in over this ledge into camp two trying to keep your balance because you don't want to fall off because it's a long way down oh my gosh um and either side is just these sheer drops you know, for like a thousand meters down wow and uh yeah so i had a wild wee there one and two oh. which was really challenging when it's cold oh and my Gosh. You're struggling for oxygen a little yeah. bit and just the exposure is crazy. So yeah, Google Camp 2, I'm a Dublin and it's a pretty impressive campsite. One of my favorite campsites I've ever camped at yeah, okay. and my, definitely my wildest way. And the wildest we love it. Oh my gosh. That's was it a height be. thing or was it a view thing? Or a terror thing because you're like oh, yeah. <laughs> perched. I wasn't terrified. It was um, definitely, a, you know, the exposure mm. is on your mind um the view it was kind of like wow this is happening <laughs> kind of uh, not many people get to take a leak here <laughs> only because with a lot of the men it, we had a uh, height theme to it <laughs> okay no, that's interesting peeing off yeah height things yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah wow that yeah. sounds i mean never mind the world we that just sounds like an incredible place to i don't think i would be able to sleep but it sounds like an incredible place to sleep yeah, yeah. and what I, would you rather take camp two or howling dingoes in the distance oh howling dingoes because, oh true yeah, yeah okay. as much as i hate those i can pretend it's just like you know a kennel yeah. of nests yeah. and uh, boston and all the rest whereas yeah you'd struggle to i'd just be pinned to the ground and camp two i think <laughs> And that might be a good position. Well, yeah, true. Wee the, <laughs> like, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, but you got to be careful not to wee on the snow because you got to collect that to melt for your water. Oh, 
<laughs> the old yellow snow thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, like I mean, we could have talked about it so much, and yeah, we're just so grateful for your time as it is. You are here on holiday. We've like pinned you in this room to to podcast <laughs> with us, and yeah, it's been super fun talking no to you. Yeah, it's been fun. If uh, anyone wants to find you online, other than Strava, <laughs> yeah, follow me on Strava. <laughs> is there anywhere that they can find you, like? <laughs> Yeah, Strava's definitely the main one. Um, <laughs> a lot but, of updates uh, <laughs> there, right? <laughs> he, Daily. He <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I'm not really online. I, I do have an Instagram account, but I don't... I, yeah, I've uploaded some pictures from some of these things I've spoken about um, on there. I was looking at it before um, to sort of remind myself sort of what I've done and what I could yeah. talk about. And a lot of it is going back to that Six Trials for Change mm. Um, period and so some of those adventures are on there and yeah then some of my more recent ones like some little video I put together for the posty bike challenge if you want to have a little look at what that's all about yeah cool. um it's pretty cool but yeah it's pretty eclectic little instagram account i think uh, yeah it kind of speaks to the just the everydayness of my kind of adventures <laughs> which are just sort of all over the shop when i think about it i don't really label myself as any one particular type of person or adventurer just kind of follow where my desires take me and people I meet along the way suggest and it's kind of cool that way and you have a seriously rich background of adventures as a result so yeah yeah, it's fantastic so what is your handle uh question (laughs) (laughs) I don't know we can put it in the show notes just like if if anyone wanted to reach out to ask any questions about like experiences yeah absolutely yeah more than happy to help you out if you got because I was always interested in um sorry I've done you trying to wrap up here but one of my (laughs) big things was like how do people afford to go on these adventures and do these things and Mm -hmm. I guess that's always been on my mind and you know what do you have to sacrifice to go on a month-long trip um to go and climb mountains or even a a one-week bikepacking trip or a a four-day commitment to go run an ultra marathon somewhere interstate you know Mm. what does it take and how do you get there and what is the cost so i'm happy to talk people through that how i did it Um, i'm sure people do it all sorts of different ways but you know i work um, a full-time job and um yeah still sort of managed to fit things in so um i got a pretty unique name so it's probably something to do with life L-E-I-F. So maybe if you search that, it might just pop up. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I have a feeling it is pretty much your name, but I could be wrong. I don't know. We yeah. can, yeah. We'll include it in the show notes anyway. But right yeah. On. Yeah. Thank you for that offer. It's certainly a really interesting point for people as well. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Into the Wee Hours podcast. To get in touch, you can find us on Instagram at Into the Wee Hours podcast or email us at into the wee hours podcast at gmail.com. On Instagram, Sarah is all the gear nay idea, and that is N-A-E for all you non-Scots people, and Kristen is at Kristen Vodden. To read the show notes or to listen on the website, you can visit intothewehours.com forward slash podcast. And to help support this podcast, you can also head over to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash into the wee hours podcast. Happy adventuring and we will talk to you next time.